Well, good morning, saints. I invite you to turn or scroll to 1 John chapter 5. So last week we completed uh, the text of John's letter, 1 John, with a very, very, very important admonition that he gives. His parting shot just kind of hangs out there, right? It's not neat and tidy. He tells us something extremely important And he leaves it at that. Here's what he said. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. That's the last thing he says in 1 John. That's the last verse. By way of very, very quick review, we expanded the traditional uh, definition of an idol to be a little more exhaustive, if if you will. So here's how we defined an, an idol. Anything or anyone who obscures your soul's gaze of Christ. Anything or anyone that gets in the way of you and I fixing our eyes on Jesus. And or impedes your earnest Christian determination to obey the greatest commandment which is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and following to love your neighbor as yourself. Right? Your affection gets misplaced where it does not belong. And or, it distracts you from the Great Commission. As we have said many, many times, we have one job. One, to make disciples. Idols will necessarily and always, without exception, distract you from your one job as a follower of Christ. Idols, fourth, will preoccupy your mind with lesser pursuits, kind of flowing from what we just said. You will literally live your life and you will go to your grave with lesser pursuits. I've never once yet met or heard of a brother or sister in Christ on their deathbed saying, you know, I, I wish I hadn't followed Christ so closely. Wish I had chased after whatever, money, fame, all of those things. It's usually the inverse. This definition is not exhaustive. It's just designed to prompt our thinking and to expand what we might traditionally hear in other places about an idol. We gave practical strategies towards keeping ourselves from idols. The how, the practical side, the application. We talked about living with an eternal perspective. It's hard to get excited about a lot of things in life when you realize that you will spend eternity with Christ and that you are blood-bought. We talked about meditating, that is thinking deeply on the glory of God. How are you going to be distracted by lesser things if you're thinking about the glory of Almighty God? Reflect often on the brevity of life. We are not guaranteed tomorrow. So why are we chasing after these temporal things? We talked about lingering at the cross. Charles Spurgeon, the great British preacher, preached on this over and over and over and over and over again. It's not like rocket science when it comes to walking with Christ. Think often about the love that the Lord showed us at the cross. The sinless son of God pinned, nailed to a Roman cross for my sins. How can I live any more in it? How can I enjoy those sparkly sins that get my attention 
when Christ suffered and died to redeem me from it. We remember Joyce. It was the two-year anniversary of her passing. We talked about the legacy that she left in our hearts, the legacy that many will know about her just from news articles and such. But those of us who knew her personally, oh, her legacy is so beautiful. It is so moving. Because we know that just like us, she had many imperfections, obviously, but her love for the Lord and her determination to love people was so pure and consistent. And we appreciated that so much. So that was the final strategy was to think often about your own legacy. What will people remember us for? Now, going over all of this uh, last Sunday, last Sunday afternoon, I, I had a thought kind of hit me. There's a very big component about this whole business of keeping ourselves from idols. Remember, I want to say one more thing. He says, little children. This is a very gentle word, right? He's not banging you upside the head with his King James Bible. There wasn't one then anyway, but that's not what he's doing. He is imploring you by the mercies of God to keep yourselves from idols. We must be watchful and intentional about keeping ourselves from idols because they will only cloud our vision of Christ. They will steal our joy and they'll put us on the sideline. But there's a very important topic, a very important aspect of us walking that out, and that has to do with our conscience. What is the role of our conscience when keeping ourselves from idols. Because you may not think that what I think is an idol and the other way around. So about six years ago, we talked about the conscience. And I'd like to bring some of that to bear this morning. But before we do that, for you trivia lovers, we have a little trivia this morning. So, the word conscience. How many times does the word conscience appear in the Bible? Options are, a true teacher will always give five examples, right? Letter A, 17, 0, 28, 47, or 8. The answer is the letter C. 28 times the scripture specifically references the conscience. But we're not done yet. There's like a big division in your Bible. We call it the Old and the New Testament. So, 28 occurrences. And by the way, no, no word searching this while I'm asking these questions. Um, Old Testament, New Testament, which has the majority of those 28 occurrences? 27 out of 28 occurrences we will find in the New Testament. It is a topic that is expanded upon and developed in an individual sense rather than a communal sense, which is what most of the or a lot of the Old Testament focuses on, you know, when the prophets would call the people out, he, they were usually calling out 
the whole lot of them, right? So in the New Testament, there's a, there's an angle that talks about the conscience for the individual, right? Not, not dismissing the communal aspect, but developing that individual thing. But we have one more. So New Testament, what book in the New Testament speaks of the conscience the most? This is my last question. I'm just trying to, you trivia lovers, we don't probably don't do this enough. Um, what book in the New Testament speaks about the conscience the most? Mm-hmm. Well, you have 27 options, and there are 27 occurrences. The answer would be 1 Corinthians. If you're familiar with the Corinthian church, you will note that they actually had a lot of issues to work through with their conscience. Um, but that's just neither here nor there. It is spoken of uh, throughout the New Testament. So Paul made this powerful statement in the book of Acts. He said, I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. That is what we call a very comprehensive statement towards the Lord and towards my neighbor, towards people around me. Notice some details about what Paul says here. He's very intentional. Remember, we talked about, when we talked about idols, we said we have to be intentional and we have to be watchful, right? This has to be something that we take initiative with. When it came to his own conscience, Paul set a wonderful example for us. It says he took pains, and I meant to look at other translations. I'm sure they say something equally as exciting. Take pains, very determined, all of those things. He says, I'm very intentional. Like, I enter into a process. Sometimes it's not fun to make sure that I have a clear conscience. It's our first clue that the scripture speaks about our conscience in different ways, depending on the person. So the goal is what we call a clear conscience. That is, our conscience cannot rightfully accuse us of unresolved sin and so forth. But notice Paul's audience before the Lord and before people. In his walk with the Lord, we all know that the Lord knows our heart. He searches our, he knows the depth of our being. Before the Lord, he seeks to keep a clear conscience. But also with the people around him. And we all know people aren't always easy to get along with because they don't think the way we do all the time, right? And it's frustrating because you're like, why can't they get it? But that's kind of our template right there. He takes pain to have a clear conscience. So what is our conscience? We use that term a lot. What is it? Biblically, what is scripture speaking to? The first thing I would say about our conscience is it is a gift from God. It kind of delivers the death blow to humanistic thought and evolution and so forth because how do you explain it 
How do you explain this built-in moral compass that everybody has? Your conscience, obviously, it's immaterial. Your conscience is very much just that. It is a moral compass. It guides, it comforts, it warns, and it will on occasion torment you. It's that little safety switch that says, oh no, you don't. And look at what you just did. Don't pretend it never happened. Don't ignore it. Perhaps the most important statement I could make, the most important truth about your conscience is this. Your conscience can be molded and trained. Or neglected and ignored. That statement needs to be kind of worked out, teased out just a little bit. Our conscience, this is both a negative and a positive statement. Our conscience can be trained one way or the other. My straight edge is always going to be the truth of God, the word of God. Right? So our conscience can be trained to depart from the truth of God or remain in the truth of God and go deeper in the truth of God so that when we build our convictions, when we form our convictions, they are in keeping with the revealed truth of God versus whatever culture is telling you in your current generation. Right? Because it, it really, every generation has this own iterations of the same lies, which is, from the garden, what did Satan say? Did God really say that? I mean, is that really true? I mean, the conversations we have in society today are borderline, well, they are ridiculous. I mean, it's, did God really say that? Well, actually, yes, he did, very clearly. But I want you to turn, if you would, or scroll to Romans chapter 12. This will not be on the screen. Romans chapter 12. I really love the therefore transitions in New Testament letters, right? There's oftentimes, particularly with Paul, there'll be well-built arguments and theology and doctrine and teaching. It's beautiful, sometimes it's deep, especially in Romans. And then he'll get to a point where he says, okay, in light of all this truth, therefore, live like this, think like this, be like this, right? Like don't let doctrine just be, you know, kind of head knowledge. Doctrine is God's truth and is designed to impact us and to govern the direction of our lives and how we think and as we build our convictions. So Romans chapter 12. After 11 chapters of, by all accounts, deep and beautiful theology, salvation, justification by faith, all those things, Paul says, okay, Now, let's make practical use of this. The first thing he says, this is very important, right? So chapter 12, verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, right? So I am appealing to you now. In light of what I've just said, I am appealing to you. This is not a light statement. I am imploring you. I am beseeching you. 
says the King James. I am beseeching you, he says, by the mercies of God, you as a Christian are the recipient of God's mercies. To present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship or your reasonable worship, right? So he says, look, in light of the beauty of the gospel, this should be obvious, present your whole being to God. You surrender, you submit your being, your mind, your thinking, your actions to the Lord, right? Because he's bought you with a price. I mean, it's not complicated. But how do we flesh that out? Watch what he says in verse 2. First the negative, then the positive statement. Do not be conformed to this world. It doesn't matter what generation you live in. Your straight edge is not the latest ideology or or direction that culture takes. We said this before, the world pretty much always gets it wrong. Right? So he says, do not be conformed to the world. Do not use the world and the people around you and the philosophies of the day to be your straight edge. Don't do that. If you do that, you will err. Positive statement. But, in contrast, right, there is a contrast between the two. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind that by testing you may discern what the will of God is that what is good and acceptable and perfect so here's a beautiful gospel term your mind being renewed be transformed he says transformed he's putting he's putting the effort on our part but it's God who does the transforming right this is not reforming this is transforming Right, This is building you up in your most holy faith. And the battleground is always the mind. So he says, transform yourself by the renewing of your mind. And of course, the, the context in the entire New Testament is renew your mind in accordance with God's truth, with God's word. Um, so just a little illustration about four years ago. We sent our first team down uh, to Brazil, to Laguina Village. Um, after years of friendship building, a few of us went down uh, to be there. Um, yes, this is me and Kaylee. And um, the, the project we had on that occasion, this is 2018, was to begin the construction of kind of a ministry community center, um, if you will, that, invo- that included a literacy center as well, like a little library uh, building as well. So when we were done with our job, you know, as far as what we could do while we were down there, there was a big celebration. And, and I don't speak Portuguese, but you can see there's like a partnership or a Bible church in, in the village and so forth. Uh, but here's what I want you to see. A part of that is underneath that structure as a part of the dedication on their end, they buried certain things that were very meaningful to them. One of them at my request, and they were in on this was to take a Bible and put it there. The same concept as the Bible that's right underneath the the pulpit that I'm speaking from right now is a reminder. Their desire along with ours is that the truth of God, the word of God be at the very center of everything they do 
as a church, right? You have to form your convictions and, and, and your, your ministry on the truth of God's word. That was a beautiful day. As you can see, they dressed up some of the kids in, in just beautiful indigenous attire. And uh, as you know, there's a team going down as well um, in early August. So keep us in your prayers. So the reminder is the truth of God at the core and the center of everything that we do. Now, go back to a, for, uh, a previous thought. Your conscience can be spoken of in different ways. When you think of different people, Scripture will talk about, well, that person has a clear conscience, perhaps, or a weak con- conscience needs to be strengthened by the truth of God's Word. We'll get back to that in just a little bit. But there's also a very, a very strong word, a seared conscience. Now, in my world of grilling, sear, to sear a steak is usually a positive thing. It's very exciting. It's like the final touch. You build the crust and it, mm. but in scripture, it takes a plunge. It's a negative statement, right? The idea is that that moral conscience that you have, that moral compass has been so neglected and so, I mean, it's like it's been seared so that the conscience cannot, cannot, will not tell right from wrong. We look at certain individuals in history where we just throw up our hands and say, that person had a seared conscience. How can you? How can you repeatedly cause such harm and damage to other people? So remember, your conscience is a gift from God. It's a moral compass, but it becomes shaped by the culture around us. It takes the shape of what we allow to form it. And so that is incredibly important. And finally, your conscience will bear witness for or against you. A healthy operating conscience has always got your back when you do the right thing. When you depart from the right thing, when you persist, when people persist in the wrong thing and harmful activity and so forth, it will bear witness against you. And you'll find Paul speaking to this on a personal level often. We've looked at this passage many times, Acts chapter 20. We won't go there, but Paul is is speaking with the Ephesian elders for the last time. And he makes this jarring statement. He says, my hands are free of the blood of all men. Why? Because I have preached the gospel in person in people's homes Corporately, I've done so with tears. I've gone from house to house and publicly, he said, speaking of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. No one can say that I did not share the truth, preach the truth to you. That's a clear conscience. As far as the ministry that God had given him, he faithfully preached the gospel and faithfully exhorted believers to walk fully And completely with the Lord. So let's look at uh, Paul's words in 1 Timothy chapter 1. This is obviously a topical sermon. In fact, it's worth turning there if if you have your Bible with you. Because I want to read just a couple verses before that. 
context is really helpful. Verse 3, 1 Timothy chapter 3, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. All right, The doctrine you teach matters. Um, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. So he's calling certain individuals out, first of all, for teaching bad stuff, but also for engaging in worthless, pointless debates about things that really don't matter, and they just create speculation. They're not teaching the word. They're just speculating about things. But watch what he says in verse Five, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. A wonderful summation of how we are to walk as believers. Right? Love underpins everything. God so loved the world. I receive this love, I benefit from his love, and so I naturally share it and show it to those around me. But Paul says the aim here is that there's a love that's not just emotional or fluffy, if you will, but it it flows from three things. Number one, a pure heart. Another way to put that is a good conscience. Your conscience is affirming you as you live life. You're not suppressing your conscience. You're not trying to ignore the fact that there might be things you need to deal with. But this love is coming from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. A sincere faith, by definition, will always be rooted in God's word. Always without exception. Right? So that's what, when the New Testament speaks of our conscience... He's speaking to fleshing out and walking our Christian life in such a way that is honorable, is gracious to those around us, but it's always founded on the truth. That's so important. So I want to take a moment and speak to something that is very, very common. And we'll tie together the verse we just looked at. It's what I would call escaping the guilt trap. How do we train our conscience? How do we develop our conscience so that our conscience serves us well but does not weigh us down? I see this very, very often. People just constantly say, I feel so guilty. Right? You never do what you think you should do well enough, whether it's in the sphere of your, your home or your relationships or work that needs to get done. You're always in, the, in a sense of just being weighed down and feeling guilty all the time. And a lot of times you can't even put a finger on it. It's just this dark cloud that holds over you. Well, I have good news for you. That's not the Lord's will for us. It's not the Lord's will for us. Scripture says it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. The entire proposition of the gospel begins with God so loved the world. Right? And we'll see as we become secure in the love that God has for us, this will clear things up. So, I want to speak for a moment. Remember, we're talking about the conscience. 
about what conviction looks like from the Lord. The Spirit of God will bring conviction our way. None of us have arrived. There will always be opportunity for the Lord to put his finger on aspects of our lives, our thinking, our actions, and so forth. It's what we call sanctification. It's a wonderfully fun, well, it's, it's, a, it's an experience that we all have as we grow in Christ, right? So there's certain things that, that are true about the Lord's convictions that differ from constantly feeling guilty, and half the time you don't even know why. First of all, the conviction that the Spirit of the Lord, will, that, that he will bring in our lives, it is always and without exception crystal clear. He puts his finger on something in our life that is easily and readily um, identifiable and understood by us. Right? Because no one is helped by a vague, yeah, just do better. It doesn't help anybody. It's discouraging. It's exhausting. But here's what we have to remember. It's kind of the antidote to constantly feeling guilty. is the Lord's great love for us. When we can understand and believe and stand on the love that God has for us, I am telling you, it is the most beautiful thing. It is the most freeing thing. And legalism has no part in it whatsoever. Take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 3. I want to show you how this is borne out in how the apostle prays for us. We should always take note of how the New Testament, I mean, if the New Testament is going to record a prayer, it's there for a reason, right? There's lots of them in the New Testament, and they're very instructive. Ephesians chapter 3. We'll start in verse 13. He says, so I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. Right? So the context of this is Paul's suffering for the gospel. Right? And we know, living in this life, that there are trials, there are temptations, there are griefs, and there are sorrows. But watch how he prays. Verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. This is for every single person alive, no matter your ethnicity, your background, or so forth. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. That's the work of the spirit. Watch what he says. That he would strengthen you with power By his spirit in your inner being, the deepest part of who you are, the recesses of your heart, that part that no one else even knows about, those burdens that you carry. That you, now watch the progression here, that you being rooted and grounded in love. Now here we go, verse 18. May have strength. To comprehend, not by yourself, together with all the saints, what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth. And to know, 
not here, only here, to know the love of Christ. That's his prayer. That you who are loved by Christ would know that you are loved by Christ. That's his prayer. That you would stand on the love that God has for you. John put it in our favorite little letter now, chapter 4. He says, we have come to rely on the love that God has for us. He prays that we would understand how loved and accepted we are in Christ. But watch how he describes it. To know the love of Christ, that surpasses knowledge. Now, that is a Bible statement if I've ever seen one. I'm praying that you would know something that you will never be able to know fully. You know what that means? For the rest of your days, you and I can rest in, learn more about, and grow in the love that God has for us. And we will never, ever, ever, not once exhaust that pursuit. There's always more. There's always more beauty. There's always more strength. There's always more security. How fantastic is that? Right? Let's not be sluggish. Let's go for it. As a teen, something I remember, like a, a beautiful memory I have, is when my grandparents came from England. To, they, would, they would come with us for like a month or so. My, dad, my granddad at the time was 82 years old. And uh, very touching. Um, my mom had them in, in, one, like in a guest room, and there were two beds in there. And, um, and my granddad saw that the two beds were like on the other side of the room. He said, no. So he moved the beds together. We hear this movement upstairs. Now here he is in his 80s, you know, moving the bed together so they can be close together. But so I was dispatched up there to help. Um, and, um, you know, just talking with him afterwards. And I just remember him, 80 plus years old, saying, There's always, I'm always learning something new about the Lord. Like he didn't grow old and rusty. He was invigorated as he walked with the Lord. He, could, he couldn't do much physically, but oh, the joy of the Lord was on his face. Um, so um, let's keep going here. Oh, going back to, sorry, Ephesians 3. Um, according, uh, so he says, to, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Now watch this, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. How do you get filled up with God? Well, by knowing on a deeper level the love that Christ has for you. That is the pretext to the next verse, which you will recognize now to him who's able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. That's where that verse is, that verse is couched. So let's go back to conviction from the Lord. The conviction from the Lord is always clear. It is always specific, right? It is always specific, meaning you can understand what he's saying and you can do something about it. Letter C. The conviction from the Lord along the same lines will take you from point A to point B. It will not be unclear to you as to which direction you should take. It will become very evident to you. Right? You should stop doing A and start doing B. Or you should abandon letter A and move toward letter B. Whatever it is, you will know from the Lord which direction you should take. That's what conviction looks like. It brings life and vitality because we know which direction to go. 
The conviction of the Lord, it is always without exception for your good. Always. There is no reason that the Lord would have to browbeat you or to, to build you down, to tear you down. He bought you with his own blood. He cares so deeply about you. And he wants us to walk in the fullness of joy and fellowship with him. The conviction of the Lord will preserve your testimony. Your testimony matters. If you are engaging in sin, if you're being, you know, I'll just use the word being a jerk. If you're being insensitive, if you're being unkind, well, that kind of sabotages your testimony in your home, in your neighborhood, in your work or whatever. So the conviction of the Lord will always be clear and it will preserve your Christian testimony. And finally, conviction is not to be confused with condemnation. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The words shame and guilt are not in Christian vocabulary. Not ever. Conviction, yes. Shame or guilt, no. Christ took all of that for us. So when you find yourself always feeling guilty, and remember we're tying this into the concept of removing idols in our hearts because we can have an over overreactive conscience in which we're constantly worried about doing something wrong when maybe we're actually not. So questions to ask when you feel guilty. Number one, first and foremost, am I violating scripture? Is my way of thinking, my way of action, is it violating the truth of God's word, the straight edge of God's word? You will recognize this next picture. It is from Nigeria. It is from last year. It is the foundation of our sickle cell clinic that we just, to the glory of God, commissioned for service. We all know this about a building. You have to have a firm foundation and you have to have a level foundation. If you build off a foundation that is not level, you can see the problems you will have. So... Build your life on the truth of God's word. When you are engaging or building your convictions or your philosophy, your ideology and so forth, make sure they're rooted and grounded in scripture. Number two, am I harming others? Is my behavior harming others? Will it cause someone else to stumble Is there an opportunity here to love well? Maybe I can do things differently to fulfill that commandment to love my neighbor well. Run these things through the checklist because we need to discern, is this the Lord bringing conviction or is this an over, overactive conscience that is constantly just making me feel blah all the time? And finally, when the devil reminds you of your past, remind him of his future. Our adversary roams like a roaring lion, always seeking whom he can devour. And one of the best ways to devour people, to sidetrack a believer, to distract us, 
is to constantly, unendingly remind us of past failures. The gospel operates contrary to that. Remember, we saw that in 1 John. When we sin, confess our sin, and he is faithful and just. To what? To his promise to forgive us. He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and also to cleanse us, to clean us up and set us on our way. 1 John 1, nine. Another quote. The devil knows you by name, but he calls you by your sin. Jesus knows your sin, but he calls you by name. That's beautiful. The devil knows your name, but he calls you by your sin. Jesus knows your sin better than you do. And he calls you by name. That's the beauty and the freedom of the gospel. So thus concludes working through the text of first John. Keep yourself from idols. Employ your conscience in that pursuit, in that process, but make sure that your conscience is serving you well by training your conscience in accordance with the truth of God's word. It's really beautiful how that works. Your conscience will serve you well. But we also don't want to be weighed down by an overactive conscience or a guilty conscience all the time. And we certainly don't want to form our convictions on anything other than the truth of God. So, beloved, keep yourself from idols. Keep your heart from giving its allegiance in big or small ways to anyone other than Christ. Or walking in accordance with anything other than the truth of God's word. We do have a few more messages, as I mentioned, that will just build themes from 1 John. But um, would you join me in a word of prayer as we close out? What I have attempted to do uh, this morning is kind of keep a very delicate balance, walk a balance between um, being watchful to keep ourselves from idols, but also to not go overboard. Like sometimes we can go to the other extreme and, and feel weighted down all, all of the time. So our admonition this morning is train our minds on the truth of God's word, on the word of God, and live accordingly so our conscience can serve us well. Heavenly Father, thank you for yet another Sunday that we can gather freely, that we can worship together. Thank you for the opportunities that you give us to serve one another, to disciple one another, to help one another. Lord, we know that it's so easy to be sidetracked or consumed by lesser pursuits, by idols. Give us the discernment that we need to know the difference between an idol and perhaps just a particular season that we're living in where we have to give attention to certain things. Lord, help us to walk with a clear conscience, a good conscience, a strong conscience so that we don't have unresolved matters that we can address ourselves. Remind us over and over and over again how deeply and how freely you love us. Build us up in that love. 
Help us to be secure in that. Help us to be quick to make amends when we need to, to confess sin. Oh, Lord, but strengthen us and help us and fortify us in your love that is so beautiful. Unconditional. And so strong. So that, Lord, the end result is that our interactions with others will model that love and show that love. That that love that's been shed abroad in our hearts will just naturally spill over to those around us. Help us to be good news to those around us. Oh, Lord, as has, always, has already been prayed, strengthen us, support us, encourage us, we pray. Thank you for the simplicity of the gospel as has, as has already been noted. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Not your efforts, not your good works, not your religious checklist, but Christ has paid it all. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Thank you. All these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.